0: But before we get going today, um, a couple pre-sermon thoughts for you. Uh, First of all, I'd like to give a a shout-out to all our podcast listeners, all 11 of you. And so if you listen to the podcast, especially whoever's listening from Sweden, we appreciate you because you make our ministry international. And so thanks to the Sweden podcast listener. Um, Also, uh, I just wanted to bring you up to date real quick on our... Our associate pastor search and kind of where we're at. We sent out an email a couple of weeks ago at, that, uh, you know, last uh, fall at our annual meeting, the leadership team presented a potential job description for a, an associate pastor of leadership development, we've called it. And uh, we decided that if our financials got to a certain place, that we would trust God and begin this process. And we've arrived. If the financials continue to stay strong, um, we pray that maybe sometime by the end of the year, we will have an associate pastor of leadership development. And if you'd like to talk to me or any of the leadership team members, uh, um, we have Richard and Dave Bergeron and Bob Stoffer and Thomas and I and the leadership team. If you'd like to talk any more about that, you are welcome to. And we would enjoy that. But a search committee is being formed right now. And uh, and we'll just continue to proceed with that. All right. Today, John chapter 19, I want to talk about secrets. That's what I want to spend some time talking about today. Did you know that there have been a lot of infamous people in this world that have had some rather bizarre secrets? They just are. Saddam Hussein uh, secretly was a romance novel author. I mean, maybe you didn't know that. I don't know. But they found this text that Saddam Hussein wrote. Um, It's it's an analogy between a righteous king and the woman he loves, who an invading army comes in and, uh, and... locks her up and takes her away. And so, you know, figure out the metaphor there. But, you know, he was a, a cheesy romance novelist, right? Uh, so, you know, maybe something that he did or didn't want known, I don't know. But Adolf Hitler, he had a fascination with Disney. Thomas, I don't know if you knew that, but, but Adolf probably a secret that Disney doesn't want known, right? Uh, Adolf Hitler had sketches of Disney characters all around his place. Um, Benjamin Franklin, Loved to be referred to as Dr. Franklin. He would insist that people called him Dr. Franklin. And uh, the thing is, uh, Benjamin Franklin, if I, real, if I remember right, he wasn't educated past the age of 10 years old. And so he had no formal education. He had a couple honorary doctorates thrown on him at some point, but he was entirely self-educated. But by the title of Dr. Franklin, he didn't really want anyone to know that. The last thing, secrets. You know, secrets you want to know. I, I came across this secret uh, this week that I thought was fascinating. The post office has released a new stamp, uh, the Statue of, of Liberty stamp, and uh, you know, promoting freedom and liberty, and it's supposed to be this big deal. And it uh, turns out that the picture of the Statue of Liberty on the stamp isn't even the Statue of Liberty. It's a picture of the replica in Las Vegas, of uh, the, uh, the New York New York Hotel. And so which, upon finding out, the owners of New York, New York, were thrilled with this idea that their statue was on the stamp, but little secrets that people didn't want you to know. You know, sometimes we all, we all have secrets. Uh, sometimes we confide those secrets in a friend, you know? And sometimes, as a friend, it's, it's hard to keep a secret. I, I came across this article. Common magazines today have hilarious advice articles. If you ever read them, they're just comical. So this advice article was di- different ways to keep a secret, because keeping a secret's hard. And so here's some of the highlights. Uh, of, put this up there, Richard. Some highlights of the uh, how to keep a secret from, from this uh, eHow online magazine. Uh, the, some of my favorite were don't tell the secret, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was great. Another one was don't divulge the secret. (laughs) I'm not kidding you, all right? And another one that I really appreciated was don't confide the secret. So I'm, (laughs) I'm not kidding you. All right. So uh, you can get rid of that. People have secrets, right? You know, everyone has secrets. They keep them secret because they fear the consequences if someone finds out. And, And sometimes people have secrets because they fear if a secret gets out, they fear for their own safety. Most of the time it's they fear whatever other people will think of them. Generally, we fear public opinion or friends opinion if they would know the truth. We have secret fans out there. Some of you are secret Cubs fans. I know you are, but you're too embarrassed to admit it, which rightfully so. um, So, you know, secret hobbies, secret sins, secret interests, secret crushes, secret income that you keep from the IRS, right? You know what I mean? Uh, So it's all across the board. People have secrets. What I want to know today, and it's really a simple question. It's a simple question. Can someone be a secret follower of jesus can someone be a secret follower of jesus (laughs) not for very long jim well we're going to see that today all right look at the words that john uses in john chapter 19 verse 38 look what he says later okay remember jesus had died they had to take his body off the cross before the sundown came and the sabbath started and so we see here so later joseph of arimathea Asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. That makes me scratch my head. Secretly? A secret disciple? So we're on, we're on message 50 of our series in, in John, and we're, there's 21 chapters in John. After today, we only have four left. The second half of John, as we've talked about for months now, is all about this journey of Jesus to the cross. If there's, Remember, there's two books of John. If you can split them in half, you'd see the, the book of signs and the book of glory. And the book of glory is all about his journey to the cross and to his resurrection. And it's this, all about this mission accomplished idea that he was on a mission. And we saw in the second half of this book, Jesus went through the Last Supper he had gave final instructions to his disciples through prayer. He prayed for them. He was betrayed. Remember this? He, he was betrayed, of course, by Judas. He went through a couple different trials. He was crucified. And last week, we looked at his death there on the cross. And today, we're looking at his, his burial. And now, to be honest, uh, this is a pretty simple text. I mean, it's what, what, five verses. Uh, no one looks at this text and goes, what? Jesus was dead dead and buried? I mean, this isn't a surprising text. You know, Jesus was in a tomb? That's just crazy talk. I mean, nobody says that, right? Uh, This whole idea of Jesus being buried isn't new to anyone. But there are some fascinating things going on here in this story as John is telling them to us. You need to, first of all, let's just look at the facts that we read here in John 19, here towards the end. Let's just look at the facts of it. First of all, the facts are that Jesus was buried. You know, Romans, we reviewed this the last couple of weeks, that when Romans crucified people, it, wasn't, uh, it was a way to elongate their death. Crucifixion wasn't about really killing someone, although it was. It was about killing them in the most brutal and awful and horrible way you possibly could do, and elongating it. And, and there's a record, I, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, of, of someone being on a cross for nine days before they finally died. So that was the point of, of, of crucifixion. And since that was sacrilege to the Jews to leave a body on the cross, oftentimes what the Romans would do is when someone would die on the cross because they're trying to teach a lesson to everyone, when someone would die, the Romans would uh, leave his body on the cross to get eaten away by vultures and other animals and to decay and just be a disgusting sign that you don't mess with Rome. But for the Jews to leave a body on the Sabbath overnight, was, it was sacrilege, and, and Rome wanted to do its best to just torment the Jews, but at the same time keep the peace. So Romans would agree to take these bodies off. And so oftentimes uh, the people that were being crucified in first century Judea at this time, the people that were being crucified were common criminals. They had a family. Maybe they didn't have a family. They certainly probably didn't have any money. And so their bodies would be taken off the cross, and the Romans would just throw their bodies into a common grave. But Jesus isn't a criminal. Jesus' death wasn't just random. And so John here, it's really fascinating. John is linking the death, the burial of Jesus to the death of Jesus. Now, when you read the other gospels, remember, there's four accounts of Jesus' life. We have four different authors writing from four different perspectives. But three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels because they agree on a lot of content. They're telling the same things. But John is kind of on his own because he's telling different aspects of Jesus life. And so for the other other writers, they're linking the burial of Jesus to the resurrection. It's sort of when you get to this point in Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's a pause. It's like, okay, let's just take a pause. He's in the ground, 3 days. We got something big coming. But John doesn't really do that with this part of the story. What John does is he links it to the finality of Jesus' mission. And you need to go back to to last week to, to really know what I'm talking about there. If you missed that, be one of—make my podcast listeners 12, right? If you missed it, go back and listen to that because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great message and it really sets the—, the stage for this message that i'm preaching today and so but for other gospel writers it's a pause but for john he's linking it to this finished work on the cross remember five times that i count in the gospel of john from in book one when jesus is out about living doing his signs five times the jews are ready to kill him but he doesn't get killed because he says my hour has not yet come And and then when we flip over, when we open up the book of signs, Jesus says, the hour has come. I mean, it's just, John is so intentional about telling us, listen, Jesus didn't just happen into this cross death thing. He didn't happen. He was marching forward on a mission. For John, his burial, burial really points to this finished work that Jesus finished and accomplished his work. Now, the other thing about this passage that's fascinating is that This passage clearly speaks to the royalty of Jesus. John wants us to know that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary dude that got caught up in something he was not big enough to handle and and, and got killed for it. No, John wants us to know that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary guy. Jesus was a king. He was royalty. And the text clearly tells us this. Um, If if you look at it, the, the first thing that John points out for us is that when Jesus was buried and his body was prepared, Nicodemus bought about 75 pounds, it was somewhere between 65 and 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloes, that you would prepare a body with for death. Now, this is an enormously large amount for for any kind of preparation for burial. Um, A person wouldn't need this much. I mean, if you think about that, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, we don't have 250 pounds strapping Jesus on the cross, right? He's probably a, a you know, from all of us accounts, a, a, a thin, normal Jewish guy, probably maybe, maybe weighed a buck 40, a buck 50. And so, you know, maybe half his body weight in, in preparation for his burial. And this is, this is uh, amazing to me because we have accounts of, in, in extra biblical literature, of people who, whose bodies were prepared. Gamaliel the Elder in the first century, was was buried in, in his body, the preparation for a royal guy, an important guy like that, they used 80 pounds of, of these preparation materials. So what John is telling us is that Jesus isn't just a normal criminal thrown in the common grave, that Jesus is royalty. We also notice that Jesus' body was properly prepared. There is a way in which a body should be prepared at this time. He was wrapped carefully. We also see that Jesus was buried... In a new tomb. I mean, this is fascinating. Look, at, look what he says. Um, in, verse, uh, in, in verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And, and it was nearby where he was crucified. And, and in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. I mean, no one had ever been buried there before. You don't get new tombs if you're a common criminal. All right. You get a used one. Someone else has already used. They've taken the body out and put the bones somewhere. So, you see Jesus, all this is pointing towards Jesus royalty that he was something more than just a common criminal. You know, in the first century, tombs were an, an interesting thing. Tombs would would be a, a cavern carved out of a the limestone hills in, in the region around Jerusalem. And these limestone hills, I mean, it would take you can imagine people doing this by hand, carving out a cave by hand. And um, and the cave would be carved out. And there was a, an opening somewhere between four and six foot tall in, in the cave. And they would have a rolling stone. It was, usually would be not be a round stone, but an oval stone. And in front of the entrance to the tomb, there would be a trench dug out. The idea was you could roll this big, heavy stone if you had enough people and it could be closed and sealed. But Tombs were reused all the time, so you might need to get back in there. And so the idea was you could get back in there if you needed. Inside the tomb, there was a chamber. Uh, You walk in, not a big chamber, a small chamber, and a ledge had been carved out along the edges of the chamber. That ledge was for the preparation of the body in burial. So they'd put the body on the ledge, and they would prepare it. They would wrap it, and they would put all these spices and aloes and things to prepare the body for death. Then inside the tomb, inside the cavern... If you can imagine, there's a series of tunnels dug about 24 inches tall, and they would dig these tunnels in about six feet. And what they would do is, once the body was prepared, they'd pick it up and they'd fi- literally, like a filing cabinet, you file the body away. You put the body into this 24 inch tunnel, and then you leave it for a year. And it takes a year for everything to decay and rot. And you- usually, about a year was the common practice. And then after a year, they'd go back. They'd roll the stone away. They'd take the body out. They'd take the bones out. And they'd put them in a bone box. And, and then they'd put the bone box in another part of the tomb. If you remember, um, James Cameron claimed he found the body of Jesus. Do you remember that? Not too long ago. Or one of these guys, because he found a bone box with Jesus' name on it. Look, he's really dead, you know. Whatever. Anyway, but, uh, you know, they would take a box like this. And they'd put the name on it. And they'd set the bones in a different part of the tomb. And then the tomb was reused. So only a very wealthy, important person could afford a new tomb. Because it's a lot of work. And if you were lucky enough to get a tomb, it would have been a tomb that had been used probably many, 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 many times. A family tomb. Uh, Only royalty would have that much spice used. No criminal would have his body properly prepared in that way. And John is clearly telling us that Jesus is royalty. And that his death was purposeful. He's clearly telling us that Jesus was an ordinary guy. And so we get that. Like when you read the story, I get that. You get that. But there's this introduction from John of these two guys in this story that when I first read this, it's like, where did these guys come from? Right. I mean, what's their deal? Like, you know, it'd be one thing if you say, oh, you know, hey, Jesus body was handed over to the eleven Disciples that were remaining, and they loved Jesus, so they took his body and prepared it, right? But you know the bo- the disciples were in hiding, and so it seems like the disciples should be giving him the proper respect. But these two unknown or minor disciples, at least from John's gospels perspective, are there taking care of his body. And what's more, if they are disciples, John's picture of Joseph of Arimathea was that he was a cowardly disciple. He believed, but he was afraid to follow. He's a secret disciple. So really a secret disciple to me, that doesn't sound very John like for John's gospel as he goes to what well, doesn't sound very Jesus like for that matter. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. He said, if you follow me, the world will hate you. He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I mean, does that leave room for a secret disciple? And how would the 11 feel about this? We, I mean, they gave their lives to Jesus, right? They gave up everything to follow him. They, I mean, they expected themselves to be to die with Jesus at some points in the Gospel of John. How would they feel about, like, hey, wait, we could have been secret disciples? Like, that's a time out. That sounds a lot better, you know? I'd like to be the secret disciple that doesn't get any of this bad stuff, and the only good stuff, right? I can be, you know, l- let people know when I'm ready for them to know. And so how would the 11 feel about this painless followership? How about you and I? Can you and I be a secret disciple? I mean, that's my question. So let's look at these two guys from the text here, okay? Let's look at these two two guys, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and, and let's look at the text together, and let's just get to know them a little bit and find out what this secret discipleship thing is all about. So first of all, who was Joseph of Arimathea? Who was this guy? Well, specifically, Joseph is the one whom John said was a secret disciple. Now, he didn't necessarily say that about Nicodemus. He says it specifically about Joseph. He was a secret disciple. Joseph of Arimathea was was a Jewish guy. Uh, Luke tells us that Joseph was from a region of Judea. Nobody really knows where Arimathea is, but Luke tells us it was somewhere in this region of Judea, which is in the southern part of the country of Israel. So if you think about that, it's down in the region where Jerusalem is. So Joseph was from somewhere around this area, Um, Joseph was a a wealthy man. He could afford a new tomb. Presumably, I mean, I'm just guessing, but presumably he had this tomb made for himself, right? I mean, he was a wealthy guy. He could afford to carve out a new tomb. And this would be his lasting legacy is this new tomb where his body is buried. Presumably he had done this for himself. Joseph was a member of the ruling religious council in, in Jerusalem. It's called the Sanhedrin. And Joseph was a member of this. Only important... God. I mean, think think important politician, all right, for, for him. He was an important guy with a lot at stake and a lot on the line. And so um, he had a lot to lose. Joseph had a lot to lose to be known as a follower of Jesus. Now, um, most scholars think that John at this point is referencing a passage that he had written about earlier in John chapter 12. Is that verse up there? Can you put John 12? Yeah. Okay, look at this. He says... At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed him. This is in John chapter 12 when Jesus had started to encounter resistance and been doing some awesome miracles. At the same time, many among the leaders believed Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. This verse describes Joseph of Arimathea. He had a lot to lose. And John reminds us of this, this in 19 when he says that Joseph feared the Jews. Joseph didn't want to see Jesus' body, however, thrown in a common grave. And so this all plays into this purposeful story that John is telling us about what happened to Jesus. He's putting it together. This, this thing is all purposeful. And something bigger is coming. So Joseph goes to Pilate, who, remember, was the Roman governor of... He has to get Pilate's permission to take Jesus' body so that Jesus' body isn't thrown into a common grave. It's all in preparation for the resurrection. Joseph goes, and he asks Pilate for permission. That's who Joseph was. Now, let's look at Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Because Nicodemus we know a little bit more about than Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus accompanied Joseph in this body preparation. He went with Joseph of Arimathea, and they they prepared Jesus' body for burial together. Nicodemus has the same issue as Joseph of Arimathea. He was wealthy. I mean, he had, he, he had the money. He could afford all these spices. So he was probably a, a wealthy person. He um, was in a position of power. He was also part of the Sanhedrin, the same ruling council that Joseph of Arimathea was on. These guys were fellow politicians. They knew each other. And so at the same time, clearly he feared ridicule or loss of position. Okay, remember back in John chapter 3... You may have heard that little verse in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish for ever, everlasting life. Remember that little verse? I don't know. You've probably maybe seen it at a football game or something. But um, in that, that, that verse comes out of this story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Remember that? Because he clearly comes at night because he doesn't want anyone to see him. And he's just trying to figure out who is this Jesus guy. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the, see the kingdom of God. And he says, what, I got to crawl up back inside my mom? Like, awkward. And Jesus says, I'm talking about something different here, right? And then in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is referenced again. When Jesus is, again, being, the, being persecuted by the Sanhedrin and people are criticizing him, Nicodemus is one that sort of opens his mouth a little bit in defense of Jesus, And he gets completely and utterly ridiculed by his other Jewish leaders. But John tells us in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus was one of their number. So, you have Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple, and Nicodemus, who sort of has kind of been on the fence with Jesus this whole time. A disciple, but not wanting to know or let anyone know that he's actually a follower of Jesus. You see, these two wealthy guys with a lot to lose. And so they're secret followers of Jesus. Now, don't miss this. Because watch what these secret followers of Jesus did. You can't miss this. These secret followers of Jesus, when the moment came, stepped out into the light. You see, everyone was running away from Jesus. Peter denied him. The disciples were in hiding. Joseph and Nicodemus publicly took and buried the body of Jesus. They had to make a request of Pilate. This is not something they could have done in secret. When John tells us that Nicodemus was the one that came to Jesus at night, John is giving us a clue. Because this couldn't have been at a night because they in, in Jewish tradition, Sabbath starts at sundown the night before, so they don't celebrate at midnight, right? They start the sundown the night before the holiday. And so sundown is coming, so it's still daytime. They're trying to hurry up and get this body off the, cro- the cross and get it prepared and get it in burial. They go, and Nicodemus steps from the darkness, John chapter 3, into the light. Joseph of Arimathea goes from being a secret disciple to a public one. When everyone was running, these guys took care of Jesus. Imagine the risk for these two disciples. Imagine the risk they face. They face position and status. I mean, these guys were important people. They were politicians. They were religious council leaders. They had status as good Jews. They, they were required in public. They took a risk in getting Jesus' body. They risked their power. They were influential with people. And, and, and the risk was that if they got identified with Jesus, that their power would be removed. They were used to public esteem and praise and respect. They walked down the road and You know, it's like people said, oh, there's Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. They're they're like religious politicians. They're like important people and we should respect them. And they risked giving all that up to follow Jesus. They risked ceremonial uncleanliness. They came in contact as Jews with a dead body, which would eliminate them from the special Sabbath that was coming up the next day because they couldn't be clean and participate in the festivals. They risked that huge... um, that huge cultural obligation that they faced. And they risked their lives. Do you know why that the followers of Jesus aren't there with the body? Because they're in hiding. They realize that their lives are at risk. So when Joseph at Arimathea and Nicodemus come out into the light as publicly as followers of Christ, they're risking their very lives. These secret followers, Joseph in particular, Nicodemus. These two guys put their lives on the line. There were risks that they took. There were also costs. It was not only term, in terms of their position in power, it cost them financially. Joseph put this tomb up, which he had, you know, it was incredibly expensive and he invested his financials and chances were that this was his legacy. Nicodemus gave 75 pounds of spices. There was a financial contribution for this even for a wealthy jew these things were a lot and my question is what made these two secret followers these two guys that had sort of been in the shadows of following jesus what made them step out into the light why did they do it you know john doesn't tell us why he doesn't tell us but i have some guesses i have some guesses as to why he did that I just think that maybe these two guys saw Jesus crucified and something inside them, in, in the core of their being, snapped. Something said this was such an atrocity, such a wrongdoing. And they realized that Jesus was, was more than just a guy. Something had to be done. Something snapped and they said, enough. I no longer care what it costs me. The point is not so much why they did it. The point is what they did. They went public. Here's my question for you. Same question I asked in the beginning. Is there such thing as a secret disciple today? Can you be a secret disciple? I think the answer to that question is yes. You might be surprised that I would say that. But I think the answer is yes. You see, as we look through the Gospel of John, Jesus has this amazing method of making disciples. It's something we've talked about over and over and over. The very first thing that Jesus does with his disciples is they're curious and they're scratching their heads about Jesus. And they say to Jesus in in John chapter 1, they say, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see In other words, here's an invitation. Follow me. Check it out. No obligations. Just come check me out. Remember, we've talked about this a lot. The fourfold ministry of Jesus. Come and see. Check me out. Come and follow. Be my disciple. Come and be with me. Do the work of a disciple. Come and remain in me. I'm leaving. It's on your shoulders now. I mean that—that's that, this, that's this idea of discipleship. So Jesus always started with this idea of "Come, check it out." And I think there's a time for evaluating discipleship. Jesus gives us time to evaluate whether we want to follow Him or not. And you might be a secret disciple if you're still evaluating whether this Jesus thing is for you. But ultimately, I believe a person doesn't stay a secret disciple because there's a time. There's a time for counting the cost. Luke chapter 14. Do I have that one up there? Maybe? Did I put that? In? Oh, I forgot to put it in there. All right. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he's enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation, is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule saying him, saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish There's a point where secret disciples are in this part of counting the cost, saying, can I really follow Jesus? Is this really for me? Is this where I'm doing this? Um, Everyone's favorite dictator, Kim Jong-il, you know, from North Korea, right? Uh, I found this out this week. It came out in the news. Uh, In 1987, Kim Jong-il decided that he would build the world's largest hotel in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. And so... Last time I checked, North Korea doesn't have a lot of tourists. But he was going to build the largest, world's largest hotel, 3,000 rooms in this hotel. And so in 1987, he started, there it is. Uh, In 1987, he started building the world's largest hotel. It took 2% of the country's entire gross domestic, domestic product to build this hotel in North Korea, in the capital city. By 1992, he either ran out of money... Or some people think that this, the hotel was deemed to be so structurally uninhabitable that uh, they had to quit. So in 1992, they quit, like 20 years ago. And that's what it looks like today. It's this cement monstrosity sticking out uh, of the city. And it's just complete. I mean, there's no rooms. There's not. It's just cement. That's all it is. It's just stuck there. It's so embarrassing to the North Korean people that uh, oftentimes if official photos of the city are uh, released. They Photoshop this building out of the pictures so that they don't get out the public. I mean, here's a guy who built, and he clearly didn't count the cost. He didn't count the cost. There is a time for a secret disciple to just evaluate and say, is the, the cost that this following Jesus cost me, am I willing to pay for that? Am I willing to give it? The other thing that's fascinating about this secret disciple thing is God's sovereignty. You can take that picture away, Richard. God's sovereignty. Now think about this. God's sovereignty, if it's in play here, then Joseph and Nicodemus were secret disciples precisely so that they could be in the position when this moment came, they could take Jesus' body, and they could prepare, it and the tomb would be there for him. And that'll blow your mind a little bit when you just begin to think about how the sovereignty of God is working in secret discipleship and through all this. And so I would say, yes, there is such a thing as a secret disciple. But not an eternally secret disciple. Because for any disciple, there is going to be a time where Jesus calls you out into the open. I really believe that. Are you a secret disciple? Maybe you've never thought of yourself as a secret disciple before, but maybe you are. If no one knows you're a follower of Jesus outside of your family and the people who are sitting here today, your, your church family. If no one knows that you're a follower, you might be a secret disciple. Now think about this. John is relating this story to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He's... It's a culmination of this finished work of Christ. Now think about this. This tomb is linked there. So redemption, this finished work of Christ on the cross, is the greatest message the world has ever heard. He finished the work. It's not something to keep secret. And if you look at last week's sermon, you'll see that Jesus was passing on the torch to you and I. He finished the work. Ours wasn't finished. I think there's just a time in the life where we just say enough. I've just witnessed it in so many people. Um, Just even here in our family at Waukee Community Church, people that are going, men and women that are going, you know what, enough. God's just doing something in my heart and I can't be a secret disciple any longer. There's a time where you just say that. God's calling me to do something and I must act. The love of Christ compels me to. Sometimes we say, I've bought into this American dream of of just having all a really nice life and 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 God is doing something to call me out. I can't be secret anymore. Maybe you've got friends and family which you've never even had a spiritual conversation. And God's saying to you, Enough. the time for secret discipleship is over. I think that's the message of John chapter 19, the end here. At some point, God will call you to ask. As I wrap up, I want to tell you this one story. When I was a kid, grew up in a great church, but... Um my church scared me a lot as a kid, you know? Like, uh, they'd tell me the rapture was coming, and so I'd run around J.C. JCPenney's, and I couldn't find my mom. I'd be like, oh, the rapture came. I've been left behind, you know? I knew I didn't really believe. I knew it. And so, I mean, there's a lot of fear stuff going on. It wasn't intentional at all, but that's what the message I got. I'll never forget this guest preacher came in one time in our church, and he starts preaching about the church in China. And, you know, God's been doing amazing things in China, and for years now, he's been doing amazing things. But he tells this story about the police came in, and and they barged into this house where they were secretly worshiping. And they pulled them all out, all these Christians. And they put a gun to their head. And they said, will you renounce Jesus? And if the person said no, they pulled the trigger. And then they go to the next person and put a gun to their head. And, and ask them that question. And, and of all these people, at the end of the day, they, one after one said, no, I will not renounce. One, no, I will not renounce. And they gave their lives. And in the end, only, they let only a few of these Christians live. And then the preacher says to me, you know, to everyone what would you do? i like, I would have peed my pants, right? <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I can't do that. I don't know what I'm going to do, right? I mean, and it, it just frustrates me. It's like, oh, no, you're a secret disciple, so you got to go out and, and do something crazy. And, you know, you know, like, so that's not what, the calling out of secret discipleship looks like all the time. The secret discipleship is this calling out happens when God moves in your heart to say, enough! I can't do it anymore! I can't! Because God is calling me to do something. God will, at some point, call you to act. And in that moment, in His sovereignty... I believe he will give you the strength to take the risk. He'll help you do what you think you cannot. Will you respond? When the moment comes, will you trust his sovereignty? Will you step out into the light? If you're already there. If you're a secret disciple today, I want to just encourage you. Listen, listen. Look at the eyes of the Spirit as he's working in your heart. Respond and say, yes, I'll step into the light. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you. On this Palm Sunday, when when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and uh, really he stepped into the light, but the entire known world got it wrong. They thought Jesus was coming to set up shop in the palace and be their king and Jesus, you had something better in mind. And yet, it makes us look forward to the day when you will come back. Let us be found as people who say yes. When you return, will you find us as people that say yes? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.